Today's show contains descriptions of violence, mental health, alcohol abuse, and the practice of female genital mutilation. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please skip this episode. For crisis support and suicide prevention services, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can also contact 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-737-732. For support and information on FGM, Call the Family and Reproductive Right Education Program on 03-8345-3058. That's 03-8345-3058. Welcome to Accent of Woman, a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I'm Ayan Sherwa. This program is produced in the studios of 3CR, and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Today on Accent, I chat to Medina Dadis about the harmful practice of female genital mutilation, also known as female genital cutting. Medina is a health worker from the Family and Reproductive Rights Education Program. And in the second half of the show, Monica Majak and Adong Wat Manuel from the South Sudanese Mothers Coalition of Victoria Discuss the challenges of resettlement. FGM is the partial or complete removal of parts of the female genital for non-medical purposes. The practice is carried out on girls and women across 30 countries and according to the World Health Organization, affects more than 200 million girls and women. February 6th is the International Day of Zero Tolerance to Female Genital Mutilation. To learn more about the practice, I spoke to Medina Ediris from the Family and Reproductive Rights Education Program. Welcome to Accent of Woman, Medina. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? My name is Medina Ediris. I'm a Farab worker at Multicultural Center for Women's Health. I've been working there for 20 years just to support women to end the practice of FGM. FARAP is Family and Reproductive Rights Education Program. Yes. Um, can you tell us the types of services they provide? Okay. Uh, yes, as you said, FARAP is a Family and Reproductive Education Rights Program. It is a Victorian uh, statewide program which um, employed around 14 workers in Victoria uh, who work at hospitals. So we are 14 FARAP workers around Victoria. Mm. We you know, being employed to just support women to educate them about um, female genital mutilation, which is female circumcision, and also to advocate on behalf of them to educate health professionals ab- about the you know the practice, and also about the cultural uh, issue about FGM. And I also know that there are four types. If yes. you could just give us a brief description of those types. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what is female genital mutilation? It is a uh, uh, World, World Health Organization defined that uh, all procedures, partial or total uh, practice in the female or genital area uh, for non-medical procedures is illegal. 
So there are four types of uh, uh, female circumcisions. Type 1 and type 2 will be considered the mild one, which is, you know, they call it sunnah type. And type 3 is uh, uh, infibulation, which is uh, cutting all the libya majoria and sticking together, leaving a small hole for urine and menstruation. Uh, this is infibulation, the severe one. And type 4 is a, just a practice like, you know, breaking or incising on the female, you know, genital area, uh, putting some hairball, you know, in the... Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that area and also rubbing the you know the genital area of women so just you know to uh, bleed or you know to be tightened mm. so this is type four and you mentioned there are no uh, medical reasons for the procedure yes um so why do people do it it is a cultural issue yeah so why it's being done is still, you know it is a bit complex and it is different from area to area and also from uh, uh community to community so it is the, you know the whole issue or the whole belief of the community is just you know to um they do it for purity uh, also for cultural issue to cultural identity to be part of the c- culture and also for uh hygiene issue also to make the girl uh, marriageable, seen as a passage of womanhood. Uh, this is generally, you know, they say that it's, you know, a passage of uh, wo- into woman's hood. Yeah. yeah. So also ensure girl's chastity before marriage and fidelity within marriage. And also they think it is religion mm. uh, issue, which is not mentioned in religion. Right. So... Yeah. Yeah, because that's one of the things that I've heard, but you're saying it's not. Yeah, actually, you know, we, we, before the law is being uh, put against FGM, we're thinking it is religion issue. So it makes us a bit, you know, nervous because we thought it is religion issue. But again, what we did is just we invite the imam from the Muslim community and also the priest from the Christianity, and we ask them, both of them, and they said it is not stated in religion, in both in Christianity and also in Muslim. Mm. So this is, you know, part of the, the issue which community to become, you know, a bit convinced about the issue. So you think that helps bringing the clerics on to explain to people that, hey, this is not part of the religion, that's yes. worked? Yes, it, it works with, you know, umbrella to education. So this is part of, you know, of, uh, convincing the community. Right. Yeah. Um, so... As we mentioned, there's no health benefits, but there are health risks. Can you tell us some of the health risks of FGM? FGM is, is you know, a harmful practice, which does have a short-term uh, effect and also long-term. The short-term is pain, severe pain, bleeding, and also infection. And, you know, um, in the long-term is, you know, it does have um problem with uh, period pain, also, you know, with uh, um, sexual intercourse when they get married, and also with childbirth. So it does have lots of uh, long-term health issue. And it's such a sensitive topic. How do health professionals even have a conversation about it? Actually, at the beginning, when we start our project in 1997, it was a taboo, you know, they cannot communicate or talk about it. Whenever we get close to women and ask them, do you have FGM? They look at, at a stranger. What, why are you asking me about my private issue? 
But now, women are ringing, you know, to get support, uh, especially young uh, women when they get married, planning to get married. They just they ask us, you know, to be defibrillated. Uh, so, well, what's that? Sorry. Uh, as we said, you know, the third type of uh, of uh, circumcision is or FGM is infibulation. Infibulation, as I, you know, um, explained it, it is, you know, the whole issue is being sticked together, the mm-hmm. Libya, majority and living a whole. So it is very hard for girls when they get menstruate, you know, for menstruation to go out. And also when they get married, it is hard for them, you know, to have sexual intercourse. So we, before getting married, just they ask for the infibulation. Uh, yeah. So that opens the... It, they open, yeah, they reopen it. It is, you know, procedure which is being done at, for example, at uh, the hospitals. One of the, the hospitals is the Royal Mons Hospital. We have an African Women's Clinic. It is, a, you know, a fortnight uh, Friday clinic. So mm-hmm. we book women through that clinic and they come and have consultation and also the infibulation. Uh, sometimes it won't happen in the, the same day with local anesthetic. They cut. It is, you know, a midwife clinic, uh, experienced midwife. So they cut them and then they stitch, you know, the edges separately, uh, not to have bleeding or infection. And at what point do doctors ask the question? Is it the first time they see um, a young woman? Like, when is the appropriate time to ask that question? It is, you know, uh, first when they ask about medical issue uh, or medical history, just they ask as part of that one. So they ask them, do you have cultural practice or, you know, uh, cultural uh, cutting? So they ask them. And then sometimes women themselves are not aware because, you know, type 1 and type 2 will not be considered as FGM. So they said, it is okay, I don't have any problem. But again, you know, when they will be examined, they sometimes, you know, or some of them, they will have, you know, a problem. So to be, they have to be cut. FGM is illegal in Australia. Yeah. Um, what if you suspect as a health professional or just someone in the community, you suspect that a young person might be at risk? What do you do? Actually, when you know we educate women, we talk about the, the law in Australia. We tell them that it is illegal you know, to circumcise a baby girl, especially you know, we then have baby girls. So we tell them that about the law imprisonment, you know, of uh, doing the practice. If, for example, she organizes a baby to go overseas and have a circumcised or to move a baby from one state to another state and have the circumcision. So if the health professionals know about that one or any, you know, one report, it's a mandatory report. Mm. So it have to be reported to police and also to child protection. So the doctors, nurses, or, you know, health professionals have that ability to report. Also school um, teachers, yeah, so they can report about that one. So we tell women that if you take this action will happen, then you will be in prison for seven years. That, in a way, Medina, is a preventative measure because later they can't say, I didn't know. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Inform them about it. So some of them, they are, you know, convinced that they have, you know, this problem themselves. So they can't say, you know, we cannot do that one. 
FARAP also does work around community awareness. And not only women, just to educate uh, all, the whole community, women, girls, boys, mm. um, men, all together we come and, you know, we um, uh, support the change. Yeah. So we educate the whole community. Why do you think it's important to get educate the men and also get them involved in changing attitude? Actually, we previously, you know, used to work with women and young girls at the school. And also, you know, um, the young girls who are at the school, they ask to educate the, the boys. This is, you know, where I was being involved in the education session. So it is true. If, for example, the men are not educated, then the girls, it used to be uncircumcised girls was not being getting married because the boys, they need circumcised girls. So now with education, men are educated and also uh, the boys are educated. So just we are moving forward for change. Is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't covered? MCWH, which is Multicultural Center for Women's Health, we are launching a national campaign to target doctors and nurses to let them know about and support women who uh, have experienced FGM or FGGC and let them know they, they can find resources on the website. The campaign launched on the 27th of February this year, 2020, and we can get a ticket by contacting MCWH or uh, going to website www.mcwh.org. That was Medina Idris discussing the harmful practice of FGM and what can be done to support girls and women at risk. If you'd like to know more about the practice, go to netfa.com.au. That's netfa.com.au. Netfa is the National Education Toolkit for Female Genital Mutilation Cutting Awareness. For information about support services, call the Family and Reproductive Rights Education Program on 03-8345-3058. That's 03-8345-3058. Since 2001, Thousands of Sudan-born refugees have made Australia their new home. Like any new community, resettlement brings many challenges. These challenges are made more profound for refugee and asylum-seeker communities whose journey to Australia is often marked by war, torture and other human rights violations. In this clip, Monica Majak and Adong Wat Manuel discuss the challenges of resettlement. The South Sudanese Mothers Coalition of Victoria is a group of mothers and young people finding solutions to issues impacting their community. Hi, my name is Monica Makomajak and I'm a mother of six kids and uh, I'm here as a founder of uh, Mother Collusion. I'm the, I'm the chairperson of the Mother Collusion and i uh, we started this long time ago in 2009. And uh, the, the reason we started Mother Collusion is because uh, they, we're seeing there's a lot of uh, problems uh, between mothers and children. And that's the reason we started this uh, Mother Collusion, because uh, when I started it, I know it will help us 
like uh, as a mothers, we can sit together and share our ideas and and talk about how we can help ourselves as a mothers with the, our children. My name is Adungut Manuel. Um, I helped coordinate um, the Impact Initiative event, um, working with Auntie Monica, the CEO of the Mothers Coalition. Um, I found that this event and this organization to be very, very important because Auntie Monica started a really important conversation uh, between young people and parents that needed to happen. Um, and as difficult as these conversations can get sometimes, it needs to be heard, uh, it needs to be said, and we both need to listen to each other. So I love being a part of this, and I want to bring in more young people to have more conversations with the older people just so that there's a dialogue. In terms of settlement programs, do they provide information about, like, this is what young people will go through. This is what young people might experience. Do they give you that kind of information? No, no, no. If you're lucky enough to get a social worker, they can just show you how to go to how to go to Centrelink. They can take you to Centrelink to register you in Centrelink. Show you how you can go to the hospital. What I can see a lot when we came here is like take you to the hospital, especially show you the market. And in the hospital, it's just like if the kids were not b- b- vaccinated, they need the children to be vaccinated. That's the, what I can see they really be uh, caring about it. But in terms of the other thing like schooling, something like that, no. Nobody can show you anything. And, and that part, I see that one, it affects us a lot. Young people don't understand uh, what we're going through because... They, they are, they are children. What happening back home? They don't understand that. But from the beginning, what makes us to think about like bringing up your children in Africa? We don't allow children to know about money or to give them pocket money. We don't allow them because we take that one as a risk for the children. Because the, when the child uh, use for the money that child definitely will be spoiled. That's why African, they don't allow children to have money until they shall grown up to know himself, to know what he's doing. Like in the age 20 to above, he's allowed to use his own pocket money. But still, the parent is still taking care of that child. And if it comes about uh, parents sending money to, to Africa, we know all of us. Children don't understand it, but they have uh, a bit of knowledge about that. Because when we came there, we came from the country that have a lot of problems, war and all these things. People, you need to help your people to be survive. That's why we're taking care of these people. Because they're not, there's no job, they're not helping themselves. But the family rely on you. They need your support. And if you don't support them, people are crying about your... People crying in your name there. You came here, you survived with your children, and you're not looking after your parents back. That's why we do that. But some parents, they let their children know. When the children grown up, you can talk to your kid. We need to help them because there's no way we cannot help these people. 
they belong to us and they're looking after us, that we are their strongest people who can help them. But here, what we, when we came in this country, we made it, we, we got it like, it's really different because when they shall uh, reach uh, 16 years, they shall need to be independent. They shall need to be having his own money and looking after his life by himself. So we find it is really very difficult. I was going to say another barrier between young people and parents is this idea that we don't know what we're doing. Our opinions don't matter because we're just children forever in your eyes. The fact that we don't get that responsibility makes it a problem when constantly you're being told you're not trusted, I can't trust you, I can't trust you. If I give you money, you're going to go drink your life away. If I let you, you know, if I give you freedom, you're not going to come back home. So it's always when people feel, well, my parents don't trust me, they don't think I'm going to do the right thing anyway, so let me just go do whatever. You call me a thief, a thief, a thief, I'm going to go steal, you know? If you keep saying something over and over and over again to someone, they're going to become that person. So I think that's a big barrier, the communication. And you have to understand that kids do understand. Young people do understand. Um, we have opinions. We have ideas. And this money thing, what I was talking about, you know, about it's not just drinking and things like that. Um, I'm talking about, like, saving, you know, for the future. But I find it really hard to save for me because I'm thinking about my mum all the time. I'm thinking about you know, helping her with her mortgage. I'm always thinking about, she struggled for me, so I have to keep helping. But then I'm also sitting here saying, I'm never going to get a mortgage for myself because forever, for the rest of my life, I have to keep paying my mum, you know? I have to keep helping everybody else. I can never, ever have anything for myself. And then later, when I have my own kids, it becomes the same cycle. Now I'm making my kids pay me because I have nothing because I was paying someone else, and now they can't have a good future because they always have to help me for all of their life and I'm going to keep making them feel like they owe me for the rest of their life. That's a big problem and it puts a lot of pressure on young people and I think that's what we need to understand. Like We, we understand you're struggling um, but the parents refuse to understand that we are struggling too. When a child says I'm depressed or whatever you say, what are you depressed about? You know, We've been through so much you have no right to be upset. You have no right to be tired as a child. You have no right to feel anything because we've been through a lot of trauma. So why do you feel anything as a child? But we feel a lot. The way the media represent the African community is not unfair at all. Because what they look, they look for the bad thing to the African, uh, which means is they destroying African a lot, and uh, especially in the time of the young people, they're really destroying them, calling them gangs, which is totally wrong. If the media treat these children in the right way, these children will never be behave like that, because as the uh, Donwood said it before, like if you've been called thief, you're not a thief, and you've been named that you are a thief today immediately you will be a thief or you will do something that you never thought about it to do it. But because you've been given that name, 
you have to do it. Media is destroying our people and is a big, big, big damage to us because our children now, they're doing this, uh, going outside, fight and do all this, even in South Sudan or other, in other country in Africa, they'd never seen this thing. We've been refugees in a lot of countries. We went to Egypt, we went to Ethiopia, we went to a lot of different countries. Being a refugee doesn't make you to not to know your culture or not to, 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 to know the, the culture of that country, the background of the, that country. You have to know it, how these people are doing their thing. But if you're being targeted, People are talking in your name all the time. Like the media is really targeting us in the wrong way. And they're not putting the right thing in the media. They're putting wrong way, wrong thing all the time. How does it make you feel? It's sad. Sometimes, especially I as a mother, sometimes I, like, I just feel like when I was in my country, the country that is not, no security, no what, People are fighting, people are doing whatever they're doing, killing people there. I should be in my country. That's the way I feel. Like taking my kid and go back to, to my country. A lot of the mothers, they feel like that. I myself am again for putting children in the prison. Putting them in the prison is destroying them. It's not helping us at all. It's destroying them because when the child, when they're in the prison, he will become totally different. He will never change. And he created a lot of sadness for them, a lot of sadness. Because when he come, he have to get the, one of his friends to, they, they will go the same way. But if they come and see that, like, putting our children somewhere, like those who are taking alcohol, drug, put them in a, what they call, in a reputation place, that one will help. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. To learn more about the South Sudanese Mothers Coalition of Victoria, go to smcv.org.au. That's smcv.org.au. As usual, we'd like to thank the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia as well as the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwa. In my native village in Johannesburg, There is a song that we always sing when a young girl gets married. It's called the click song by the English because they cannot say Omotwane. Ikrihal and Lela Kutangu Tongu 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 Tongu